everyone. It's Friday the 11th of September and welcome to episode 22 of the Kite Podcast 2020 with me, Will Evans. And me, Ben Eagle. Now, Becky got quite excited when she told me about this week's episode because we're talking about something that she gets very excited about. Milk marketing. At a time when everything seems to be challenged from politics to the way we shop and even the way we socialise, is now the time to fundamentally challenge the way we think about milk marketing. To do this, we've got another Evans on the show today, Harry Evans, um, who is an account manager at VCCP Media. We're also joined by our very own Becky Leach. And of course, as always, we're joined by everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Auckland. Very popular surname, Evans. Very popular. (laughs) Um, Chris, let's go over to you for the weekly milk market update. Where are you this week? We all want to know. Well, I'm in Adland today, wherever that is, presumably in a big tall building somewhere, because we're talking advertising with an advertising man who's very clever. How do we know he's very clever? Because Becky knows him, and she only associates herself with clever people. (laughs) Still knock about with you every now and then, though, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I, I I think this is a brilliant suggestion for a podcast, because there's one thing I've just realized that this podcast lacks, and that's a jingle. Well, I've come up with one. (laughs) There we go. Here it is. It works. Smile, 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 smile. Smile, it's the Kite Dairy Podcast with Bill, Ben and Becky. Constructive, convivial, counterbalanced dairy debate. Listen now, or don't. Smile, smile, smile. Isn't that so cool? <laughs> is that, is that, is that sticker now, Becky? Oh, Chris, your market report, just get on and do it. Just oh, do it. Work. That's a good line. That's a good advertising line. Just do it. Write it down, Harry. Write it down. <laughs> okay, so here is my market report. The market report that refreshes other parts market reports can't reach. Well, if Carlsberg did butter, as we know, it'd be the best butter in the world and also the best price, but it doesn't. Nevertheless, the price continues to have a bit of Vorsprung dork technique behind it, especially Dutch as opposed to German, which sort of ruins the gag. Dutch is up by a significant 70 euros after three weeks to 3,400 euros, which could be better, but at current exchange rates, it equates to 3,100 sterling. So we're over that 3,000 threshold again. The average skim milk price is a bit of a tiger in its tank too, but uh, I guess only us oldies will remember that one. (laughs) But it's really rather a kitten rather than a tiger, with only 75 euros worth of gains over a month. But it's closing in on 2,150 euros now, or over 1,900 threshold. So another bit of a gain. And the combination results in an ampy price of just under 27p after transport, but before a margin. Every little helps. In the UK, markets are still okay. Uh, they finished last week relatively strongly and are still holding their own with cream prices a finger looking good in the high 150s to 160s compared to where they have been. 
and spot milk prices. There, snap, crackle and spotting. <laughs> Get the joke. Get the joke. <laughs> At 33 to 34.5 pence delivered. And skim concentrate, uh, which, uh, um, which goes into making only the crumbliest, flakiest chocolate and other products too, is still strong, although not quite as strong as it was a week ago. Alas, though, both EU butter and futures have fallen again. As we know, they've been up and down like a lady of the night's undergarments. And unfortunately, this week, they're down. That's the futures, not the undergarments. Well, they might be down as well. I'm not sure. (laughs) Cheese in the UK is still as it was. Um, Mild is very stable at under 3,000. But mature is very tight because of uh, previous demand. And maturation times are shortening. And Gouda on the continent has strengthened slightly, but there are indications mozzarella has weakened a bit. Nevertheless, um, cheesemakers are increasing their prices uh, to reflect the decent outlook. So uh, that's a positive. Not so for liquid suppliers, despite the increase um, in uh, cream that we've seen. I can't see many increases coming out of them in the near future, I'm afraid. And the price outlook in New Zealand is also declining. So it's okay, but it could be better. So there's my report brought to you by me because you're worth it. (laughs) Remember, even when life's a bit crap, smile, smile, (laughs) smile, 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 smile. <laughs> the the oh, Warwick, the Warwickshire Don Draper there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just yeah, I'm slightly confused and concerned. Just oh my, here it comes again. <laughs> you, we better get. Are you getting paid commission? I think, <laughs> you better get uh, Kite's lawyers to have a listen to this one before we put it out. Just in case we're breaching all sorts of copyright. <laughs> Thank it's you, Chris. Maybe one actually. <laughs> Let's go on. <laughs> we'll let Becky introduce the main subject uh, for this episode in a minute. But first of all, I want to bring in Harry and introduce him to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, can Morning, you thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, it's great to have you here. Um, can you introduce yourself and uh, let us know where you're coming from um, when we're talking about milk marketing specifically? Um, because you have a bit of a personal insight as well um, as, as the son of a dairy farmer as well as, as, well as a marketeer. Yes, I mean, um, yeah, so thanks for having me on uh, this morning. And yeah, like you said, um, I'm sort of working in, um, working in advertising, particularly, uh, specifically in um, media planning and buying. Um, but I also do quite a bit, of, um, a bit of writing and a bit of work in sort of field of behavioral economics, which is essentially merging psychology and, um, and sort of consumer decision making and sort of understanding how that happens at, um, at that sort of subconscious level. Um, but yeah, my parents um and my sister actually um are dairy farmers in southwest wales and um clients of kite as well um so yeah i I suppose i've kind of always had uh that kind of insight and um sort of you know the perspective from that side of things and now sort of having sort of moved away from that uh that world a little bit got this other sort of uh this other side of things so um i'll let you see what you think about uh some of the ideas and thoughts that i've got on this 
Okay, we, we are intrigued as we go on. I know, I know Becky is very excited, as I said earlier, but um, Becky, let, let's bring you in now. Um, we've talked about milk marketing in, in various guises in previous episodes, but what's different about today um, and what context are we talking about milk in here today? The sort of context in terms of dairy campaign and milk marketing and you know what we're talking about here is, you know, we, we've spoken about the Milky Moments campaign and the industry collaboration on, on previous episodes. And I think there's that precedent been set now, and I suppose it, it's you know based on what Ash said on one of the other ones, uh, the other podcasts. You know, how do we keep the momentum going? I think that sort of combined with the fact that there's some really good and strong dairy brands out there. So you know, Cravendale, the Muller Corners, Lurpak, Cropwell Bishop. You know, we've got a lot of really good. Um, brands that have really good traction in their categories and I suppose a bit of the chat that Harry and I had is you know what is it about those brands that that work and how can we expand that wider from a dairy and milk marketing campaign campaign perspective and I suppose the the third sort of part in the jigsaw for me is that you know farmers suppliers processors retailers we've got all this information um, that we need to give consumers assurances about dairy health and its environmental credentials and what have you. But it, it just doesn't quite feel like we're scratching the consumer's itch. Harry, can you take us uh, into the mind of a consumer when they're in the supermarket buying various products? Um, how impulsive are we in what we buy? I mean, my wife doesn't let me go to the supermarket because I think last time she sent me for bread and milk, I came back with sort of 12 bottles of wine, a socket set and a pair of flippers. <laughs> I, I am one of those. In- <laughs> um, I think sort of, you know, sort of getting into the mind of the consumer, it really comes down to understanding how consumer decision-making works or very much human decision-making works. Um, and, you know, there's various work that's sort of come out of this in the sort of past um, few decades um, so mainly in the field of what's now known as behavioral economics. And I think, you know, sort of one, you know, particularly strong um, sort of theory or idea um, or concept uh, within this is the idea of, I think, what they call the system one and the system two brains. And these, these are essentially ways that um, psychologist Daniel Kahneman actually sort of codified um, two different thought processes that we have in the human brain. Um, so, you know, you've got one which is, very automatic, very emotional. Um, it sort of you know deals with fast, instinctive, intuitive decisions. Um, and then you've got the system two part of the brain, which is very slow, very logical, very effortful, and you know that deals with language and numbers and things like that. And I think what's sort of key to take from that is the fact that that system one, that emotional side of the brain, um, that accounts for about 95, 90, 95% of our decision making. Um, comes from that instinctive side and that logical side only comes from about only accounts for about between five and ten percent of our decision making um, so you know we like to think that we're rational creatures um, you know that we make decisions based on logic um, and sort of you know carefully calculated um, you know thought processes but actually we're um, predictably irrational as um, as the author Dan Ariely puts it um, and you know we can see this in everyday life you know it's not just to do with consumption you know when you think of um i don't know you know an example in everyday life of um um in the evenings you think right the logical part of your brain says i need to go to bed early and if i go to bed early then i'll be 
um, awake early in the morning, I'll be refreshed and rested in the morning, and then I'll be productive in the day, and then I'll get a lot of work done, I'll get a promotion, and then I'll get paid more. Um, yeah, that's what the logical part tells you. The instinctive part says, oh, one more episode of Netflix. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so you know, you think, well, which, you know, when you think about it, which of those ideas or which of those um, decisions comes easiest? It's clicking next, uh, next episode. Hmm. Okay, so how do advertisers make the most of that psychology and, and help retailers influence what we buy? I mean, there's a huge amount of, you know, sort of different factors that come into play. Um, and it's, you know, it's certainly not a one size fits all. Um, and, you know, there's various concepts and theories within behavioral economics. You've got things like nudge theory and um, looking at what you call behavioral biases. But I think, you know, when we're looking specifically at products and, you know, product marketing, I think, you know, what we've got to start with, I think, is strong, attractive brands. I mean, it was, um, you know, Byron Sharp, um, absolutely, you know, sort of, brilliant book is very much the, the bible of um brand marketing some people might disagree um but i know most people would um agree um it's about how brands grow um sort of says you know creating an attractive and memorable set of distinctive assets is you know very much the starting point and i think you know that comes down to understanding how our brains process information um and essentially you know through brand activity um what we're actually trying to do through you know, marketing and advertising activity is building up a network of little short-term memories of this of a, of a particular brand, um, whether that's from an ad or whether it's you know, seen as a sports sponsor. Um, and so it's building up those short-term memories in a in a positive context um, through you know entertaining um, scenarios or entertaining um, you know, bits of advertising and. What that eventually does, once we've got that network built up in this subconscious part of our mind, um, it creates a long-term positive perception at a subconscious level. And that carries through to the point of decision-making. Um, so, you know, when we're, as you say, standing in front of the shelf um, in the supermarket, we make an instinctive choice without even thinking to pick up a particular product. But I think, you know, where branding comes into it, um, a particularly important level is, you know, it's you know those the identity has to be completely consistent. You need to see the same colors, the same logo, the same font across all the communications, and then also see it on that supermarket shelf. So I think you know understanding it that it mainly happens at the subconscious level is is pretty key. There's a bit of chicken and egg here, isn't there? Because a valuable asset in in a logical brain, we've got all that from a dairy perspective. We've got all the nutritional benefits versus nearly every other possible drink that you could 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 consume we've got its nutrient density we've got really good environmental credentials so so what i think are valuable assets or features i think you use the term assets you know that we, we've got all that information already i suppose it's then how we create that into a brand you know we we do have a probably a fairly aut- automatic decision making process for most customers in the supermarket you know red blue green lid is is really probably as as far as that extends, isn't it? I suppose it, it, the the question is: is how do you how do you get consumers? You know, w- which comes first? Does the branding of dairy as a whole entire product range or liquid milk or whatever that looks like come first, or or you know, are we looking for individual brands, Harry? Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think as I was saying just previously, you know, that idea of having a clear 
interesting, attractive, um, you know, brand identity that you know carries through and you know allows you to build up that um, that network of memories and that long term positive perception that carries through to that point of purchase, that point of purchase decision making. Um, but I think you know, to your point, um, you know, what you were saying about you know we've got all the actual you know what you would call assets, you know, you know, uh, you know brilliant product, um, you know, that's very much what's known as explicit value. You know, that's the actual, um, you know, value that we get from the actual product. So, you know, the nutritional benefits, the calcium uh, and all of that. Um, but, you know, what we you know, sort of do in advertising is we look at the perception of, um, of a product rather than the actual explicit um, product, what it is. And I think the, um, you know, the challenge, as I was saying, with milk is the fact that, you know, it doesn't have that immediate point of identity that we can build upon um, from that you know unfortunately you know milk is just milk in most cases um, obviously there are some brands out there as you say um, and I think what that um, sort of puts us in danger of is it sort of very much becoming a bit of a commodity giving a bit of a commodity status um, because you know when you think about it it's the only product I think as far as I know with the possible exception of bread it's the only product in the supermarket that doesn't have its own shelf space. It's all wheeled in in cages. And, you know, so what does that say about, you know, what it is? Oh, it's just something we'll chuck in and it's something people need. And it's, you know, this is this cheap thing that's there. Um, and, you know, that very much creates a perception that it's, um, you know, lower value products. And I think mm. the challenge is, um, you know, to be able to move it away from this commoditized status um, as a whole and, you know, Branding is certainly one way of doing that, um, where you you know create this more of a want uh, for a product rather than just a need for the cheapest thing available. So we've spoken about milk being a commodity and perceived as such by consumers, but saying it as let's move away from liquid milk specifically and broaden that out. How do you lift something from a commodity status to something with a greater perceived value? Um. I think that, you know, obviously there's a huge amount of variation with this and it's not necessarily one size fits all. Um, but price is generally, um, you know, a pretty big driver of commodity status and especially when that, you know, price has been driven down. Um, and, you know, there's a huge amount of, example, of examples when that's actually, you know, been the case. Um, and, you know, I think sort of, you know, kind of going back to milk in particular, though, um, you know, there's a brilliant bit of work uh, done by Tom Levitt, who's um, is a Nuffield scholar uh, from a few years ago. And his whole study was on um, uh, sort of, you know, the future of milk being a branded one. Um, I'm sort of, you know, a big fan of the stuff he's saying. And, um, you know, he was saying that, you know, that ongoing price war on conventional milk, it's, you know, it's really been a block on consumers trading up to a higher value milk like you know even like organic um at that sort of basic level and you know i think the shift that needs to happen is supermarkets need to stop using it as a loss leader um because you know it's very much been this this whole supermarket price wars since about the i think it was about the 90s um it's really been going on and you know milk has been one of those things that is really um you know sort of driven down in price to maintain consumer loyalty um, and supermarkets are doing that to maintain their consumers. They're not doing it for the good of their suppliers. Um, you know, I think it was about 11 years ago, um, somebody had a website that lets you compare car insurance, which you know, sounds like a fairly dull topic. And they went into a meeting with their advertising agency and their agency said, um, you know, the answer to this is a CGI Russian meerkat. 
and completely changed their fortunes. I think you know they're sort of you know, still to this day are on top. Um, and obviously, compare the market is what I'm talking about there. Um, and I yeah, that was with CGI. I thought it was a real meerkat. <laughs> <laughs> very well, very well trained. Very well trained. <laughs> But yeah, that's a good example of um, you know not changing the product in the slightest, and not shouting about the product. You know, any kind of logical person would have said, "Well, you know, we need to talk about you know the the best deals that you can get compared. You know, don't go to go compare, don't go to confuse.com. You know, we've got the best deals, and it's easier to find on our site. So no, 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 let's have a aristocratic meerkat um, telling you about it and using a bit of a pun. So by that logic, then Harry. Um... In dairy, you know, as, as farmers and those working in the industry and actually throughout agriculture, we, we often focus on we've got all these really good health messages. We've got all these really good environmental messages. And but but really, we just need a meerkat is basically <laughs> the context of what you've just said or something similar. Um, but but, you know, we, we don't seem to get credit for that. You know, like all our competitors or um you know, dairy alternatives, there the seems to be this implied um, image that they are better from a health perspective, the better from a nutritional perspective, the better from a environmental perspective. How do we change that so that the health, so that the, the benefits that we've got, those actual benefits are almost implied, and then we can work on finding a meerkat? <laughs> um, yeah, I think the whole, the whole health benefit issue is, uh, is a really interesting um topic i certainly think so anyway um and i think you know in terms of um you know health benefit let's start with that um and then go into the environment um but i think you know there's sort of a theory that i have is that actually pushing that health benefits idea front and center may actually be doing more harm than good um and there's there's an area in psychology called psychophysics which is essentially um well, very much what we're talking about, the way that we perceive something at a psychological level versus, you know, the actual physical attributes, the physical stimuli, um, if you want to use the word, um, that we actually get from a particular product. And, um, you know, there's an idea of this, this, is this sort of health placebo effect and the idea that if something, you know, if something is meant to be good for us, then subconsciously we think it must taste a bit crap because, um, you know, it's it's just, you know, there's a huge amount of factors to that. And part of it is the way that we've been conditioned. You know, when you think back, you know, from childhood, um, anytime you're given medicine, on the whole, it generally tastes disgusting. And it's something you don't want to do. But that is the sort of pinnacle of what is good for you. It's something that's literally going to make you better. And, you know, there's an idea in psychophysics that, you know, that has... Um, that sort of idea is conditioned us to thinking, well, you know, if something tastes bad, it must be good for you and vice versa. You know, if something's good for you, it's, you know, it's got to taste a bit weird or if it has some kind of medicinal or psychotropic powers, it's got to take a bit, taste a bit weird. Um, I think, you know, when you think, you know, if you, you know, if you're in town or something and you, you know, if you fancy something sweet, if you fancy a bit of a pick me up in the afternoon, um, you know, chocolate or something, you know, you think I'll go into the corner shop and I'll get a bar of twirl or a double decker. Um, you don't think, well, I'll pop into Holland and Barrett for something nice and sweet. <laughs> um, and, um, but yes, you know, you think, you know, you think of things like wheatgrass and things, you know, very good for you. Um, so you perceive to be very good for you, but you know, tastes pretty awful. Um, so, you know, I think that's a particularly interesting idea, you know, why we may want to be careful about, you know, sort of pushing all this whole thing of like vitamins and iodine and calcium and, and whatever 
So let's start to summarise this. Um, in theory, Harry, could you then encourage certain consumers to drink more milk by just reframing the ways that it's perceived? Definitely. I think, you know, the fact that, you know, some of the biggest brands in the world are still consistently advertising and, you know, have got, you know, always on strategies pretty much all the year round kind of, uh, you know, it says something about the fact that, yes, you know, changing people's perceptions about something, you know, can lead to sort of increased sales. And ultimately, that's what it's all about. It's about that sort of greater penetration and more people buying more often. Um, it's not about just having you know, a small group of people who are just, you know, constantly loyal um, and constantly faithful. It's about, you know, sort of building more and more purchases um, and, you know, creating more opportunities and scenarios um, and perceptions around that, um, you know, to purchase the product um, is, you know, is absolutely key. And I think that's where it starts from. It starts from an idea of perception. Because like I said, you know, we don't want to change the product. Um, you know, you shouldn't. There's no, mm -hmm. there's no need to. Um, it's about changing the idea around it. Okay. Um, that was amazing. Really, really interesting discussion. I'm sure we could have talked all day, but um, that's all we have time for today. But a big thank you to our guests, Harry Evans, Becky Leach and Chris Walkland. Yeah. Thanks also to you for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time in Kite Podcast Land. But for now, I think we'll leave you with the jingle of the week. Chris? Smile, 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 smile. smile. <laughs> this is totally awful. <laughs> Smile, it's the Kite Dairy Podcast with Bill, Ben and Becky. Constructive, convivial, counterbalanced dairy debate. Listen now, or don't. Smile, smile, smile. I'm not happy with the or don't option either. <laughs> I don't know, I was, I was thinking about that, Becky. There might, there might be some sort of weird sort of psychological thing or <laughs> don't is this sort of like you know, is this sort of double negative or, um, or whatever you call it I'm doing the kite twitter account all wrong <laughs> <laughs>